When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 37 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, October the 15th. First, I'll be talking to Tom Cornell, the Head of Assessments, APAC, at Hireview, about how Aussies can prepare for the Great Resignation where employees are moving away from jobs where they feel unappreciated and are instead moving towards new priorities and goals, from more money to greater control over their time in the COVID era. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about whether Sydney's reopening will have an economic impact. But now let's talk to Tom Cornell. Well, Tom, tell us what is the Great Resignation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Great Resignation is really a, I don't know if you call it a movement or a a shift or a trend we're seeing in that there's been a greater amount of individuals looking to leave their current jobs or or pursue uh, new career opportunities. Really, the 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 term was actually coined a couple of years back. It, It predates the COVID pandemic, but the COVID pandemic really created a kind of a perfect storm with a few different elements that's really helped to kind of speed that up. I think that the rolling lockdowns has given people more free time. Um, you know, here in Sydney, we're in our 14th week of lockdown. So people are spending a lot of time thinking about uh, the future, their current state, what they're doing, and perhaps maybe questioning um, certain decisions that they've made or, or certain career choices. And so that's giving them a lot of time to reflect on how they might want to do things differently once, of course, those lockdowns and the, and the pandemic starts to, to fade away. We've seen a big increase in, in entrepreneurship as well, which is quite interesting. I think a lot of people who, again, just that time spent at home able to plan and think about the future has meant that that's given them the extra push they needed to pursue you know, their side hustle and perhaps take their business from being an idea into something tangible. I think in the US, they saw about a twofold increase in new businesses being registered between 2019 and 2020. So there's a lot of excitement about trying something new and thinking about what, um, what you can be doing differently. How specifically has COVID precipitated this? Yeah, well, I think it's exactly around that. It's, it's around the lockdown, um, giving people that time to think and that, that, that free time to focus um, on what they're doing, what they could be doing differently. There's certainly an element of, I guess, creating a backlog. You know, when COVID first hit, there was a lot of uh, anxiety um, around, you know, am I going to keep my job? Uh, a lot of people were let go. You know, people's perhaps were taking on salary cuts as business stayed afloat. And so 
perhaps that wasn't an ideal time to voluntarily jump to something new. Um, however, whatever factors were making people think maybe it's time to leave, they're still there. So they're ready to move on now. Well, I, I, would, I would suggest, may I, that COVID has actually created a whole lot of existential issues for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are really starting to think about what's important to them, what really matters. And, you know, we're living in a time when that kind of nine to five, Monday to Friday grind is, is really being challenged. Uh, I mean, I think it's a whole different discussion point altogether. But you think about the four day working week that's being trialled and seeing some success. I think people are starting to question, you know, do I actually want to spend eight hours a day, five days a week in the office, having spent maybe an hour commuting there? Well, that, that raises another issue. We're going to probably see when we come back to the office, we'll probably see people saying, well, I'll work three days a week here and you know, I'll spend the other time doing other stuff and I'll, I'll still do, put in work, but uh, they might be doing other gigs on the side. That creates a hybrid work model. Are we going to see a trend towards that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of people have had that experience of working from home. I think a lot of people have perhaps adapted to, to that. I think certainly for some people it's harder than others. I mean, I don't have young children, so I know some of my colleagues found it more difficult to actually, hey, now I've got to do everything um, at home the full time. So while on one hand, perhaps being enforced to have to work from home is, is quite challenging, having the flexibility and the freedom to choose when and if you go into the office, I think is quite valuable for a lot of people. Uh, I think that people are really missing a lot of the social interaction uh, that, of course, being in an office does provide. Everything, when you're having to do it over Zoom or, or, or WebEx, everything's planned, it's structured. You're not going to just reach out to someone and say, hey, do you want to jump on a Zoom for two minutes and just have a, a bit of a matter? So I think some of those those small interactions that we miss, people will, will want to get from being able to go in the office um, every now and then. Uh, and so I think back, yeah, I think Australia has always been quite good at that. Australia's always ranked quite highly in terms of offering of working from home and flexible working arrangements. Um, but I certainly think we're, we're seeing a bit of a shift towards that globally. Based on that model, we're talking about an employee's market. It will give them more power looking for work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really, that is really what we're seeing. There's there's more of an onus on the employer to make uh, you know, the working environment and the, the, the role itself more attractive to uh, not only prospective, but also current employees to, to not only draw that talent in, but actually to, to retain them. Um, I think that we are seeing a lot more confidence from employees to, to push and to ask more from their employers. If we think a few sort of decades back, it was very common to have you know, this idea of a job for life. You get a job and that offers you structure, stability, you can work your way up the ranks over the years and your pay will come with that. Whereas actually now people are starting to question that they're, they're moving jobs perhaps every few years, joining startups, trying something new. We're kind of moving away from this idea that employees should you know, be, be grateful. You know, oh, I'm so thankful that I've got this job with this company. You know, I, I don't want to, to, to put any risk to that. I think people are feeling more confident about taking risks and, and trying something new. This trend has happened over the past year, is that right? Um, well, no, I think it's it's certainly sped up over the last last couple of years. I just think that COVID and the shift to everything going digital, um, that's of course has sped things up a little bit. Um, but I think that you know certainly coming from I guess my background being around the assessment space certainly predates the, the pandemic by a few years. This this focus on kind of candidate experience. The idea, again, that you, you, know, you can't expect candidates to just jump through multiple hoops and say, well, oh, they want to get this job 
they'll, they'll do it. We started to see a shift away from you know, multiple rounds of interviews and these traditional long form assessments and candidates saying, hey, actually, we're not happy with this. So a lot of organizations are putting a big focus on improving that candidate experience. And we're also now seeing that then translate into saying, well, hold on, it's not enough to focus on your prospective employees and make sure that they're happy with the process. You've also got to make sure that you're able to maintain and retain them once they're in the organization. I was talking about a little while back around sort of candidate experience as a search trend in Google started picking up in around 2009. Um, but employee experience actually started coming in a lot later, like 2015, 2016. So maybe they're kind of playing a bit of catch up around saying we need to focus on the entire human experience rather than just on the candidate. Well, this has huge implications for businesses. I mean, how can they actually build a workforce and maintain a workforce in that climate? And what adjustments do they have to make is more to the mm-hmm. point. Well, I think it's as important that you know, they, they make sure that they are listening to their employees and what, what really matters and, and is valued by them. You know, there's certainly plenty of research around you know, different generations and what they tend to value. You know, generally, your uh, sort of older generations would value stability and opportunities to, to generate wealth. Whereas the the more sort of uh, the newer generations entering the workforce now, they might have a greater emphasis on work-life balance um, and sort of uh, opportunities created by your work, perhaps living and traveling abroad. So you can get some general rules and okay, these are the kind of things people are looking for, but you know, that doesn't replace actually speaking to your workforce, having your managers engaging, saying, hey, we know things are tough, we know things are going on right now that um, none of us expected. What can we be doing to make things easier for you and to, to ultimately make you happier? Conversely, it would mean the organisation would be have, much, have to be much more in tune with what their workforce is on about and to actually be providing opportunities to move as mm-hmm. well. Would that be right? Well, I don't think necessarily just opportunities to, to move. I don't think that's obviously the, um, the only thing that people are necessarily looking for, although I certainly do think that the shift to that hybrid workforce is, is creating a trend in that direction. But I think that it's, it's almost not too much to ask. I mean, employers are often saying, hey, we want people who are really agile, who are really flexible. That's a, a, you know, that agile mindset is, a, is something we're hearing employers say. We want that in our workforce. We want that in our, our new employees. And so I don't think it's so much for those employees to kind of flip that back on the employer and say, well, great, you want me to be agile and flexible, but that also means I want you to be agile and flexible to what I want and to how I want to do things. Well, the issue is uh, how can employees improve their chances of landing a job as we move out of the lockdown? Yeah, I, mean, I think yeah, what, what employers are looking for, has, we haven't seen a, a significant shift in terms of, of, of the process from the pandemic. I mean, and I say a couple of things like resilience and that agile mindset when people are having to you know, be able to work from home, we've seen a bit of an uptick in that. But ultimately, the processes are, are largely the same, you know, interviews and, and assessments. Um, but they have, of course, moved to a more digital, a more digital modality. So I think for candidates who are looking for the job, you know, ultimately, the process is the same. You, know, you, you need to understand the company, you want to understand the role, think about what you have to offer and, and the time that in, just the same as if you're doing it face to face over the phone or, or via a, a virtual interview. Um, that hasn't really you know, fundamentally changed. What I think is also important is that people really consider the transferable skills that they've they've been able to de- develop and learn during the, the pandemic. I think that people have had very different experiences over the last 18 months. You know, some people have lost their job. Some people have perhaps, out of necessity, had to move into a totally different area because you know, the area they were working in before, it, it just 
collapse as, a, as an industry. And so I think that people can take a real focus on, okay, what have I learned from that rather than simply saying, well, I did this the last 18 months and, and, and that defines me. And I think that goes both ways, right? I think not only from a, a candidate looking for a job need to consider the more transferable skills rather than the experience for experience sake. I think employers need to remember we can't make any assumptions about anyone's personal experience or, or why they made certain choices over the last 18 months. We, we can't assume anything about that. So focusing on what they, they bring to the table, uh, the skills they have, the capabilities, rather than their latest job title or, or, or their work experience from the last 18 months is, is really important. And of course, given that we've all been working in times of lockdown, and uh, many people would have picked up valuable skills. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, certainly I think the first lockdown, everyone I knew was saying, oh, I'm learning to bake banana bread. I'm going to learn a new language. And I think by this one, people were, were perhaps not quite so optimistic. So I think look, it's not as much as saying, oh, well, you know, I didn't spend you know, all my spare time learning a, a new technology. You know, I, I think that while everyone might have started with a great ambition, the reality of lockdown quickly, quickly fitted in. But certainly still people have been doing other things, people getting involved in different ways in the community, um, or, or even just how you've had to adapt to working from home. You know, that actually can show some resilience and some agility. So um, I think people absolutely have a lot of, of positive things that they can bring out from the, the lockdowns that they can then apply to the workforce. And working from home, you'd pick up a whole lot of other skills as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I think that, that I, I don't have children myself, but I certainly know that some of my, my colleagues who do, um, they've certainly had to, um, you're taking on that kind of people management, that structuring their time and being yeah. able to just quickly jump off a call to do some homeschooling. Yeah. Um, something like that you know, demonstrates a, a lot of capacity that you, you may not have been able to demonstrate previously. Well, Tom, that's all quite illuminating and thank you very much for your time. No, thanks for having me. It's been great to speak to you. And now let's talk to economist Saul Islake. Well, Saul, Sydney's opened up this week and there's all sorts of predictions that uh, this is the way ahead and Victoria will be opening up uh, later this month. And Daniel Andrews has flagged a vaccinated economy, but certainly the September GDP figures are looking bad, but uh, it's a good sign, is it not, for the forthcoming GDP figures? But then again, we aren't entering into a zero COVID economy. Well, all of that's true, Leon. Uh, first of all, it will be an enormous relief to the long-suffering people and businesses of Sydney and when it comes to Melbourne to escape from the stifling lockdowns that they've been subjected to over the last hundred or so days and in Melbourne's case considerably longer than that and that will almost certainly be reflected in a significant rebound in economic activity from what as you say will have been a quarter of negative growth in the September quarter. Now, as far as I'm concerned, New South Wales and Victoria, and given their weight in the total Australian economy, Australia as a whole has been in recession during the past three months. And whether or not we get consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth is really beside the point. We have been in a recession, but the good news is that we will be coming out of that recession in the December quarter, and that will be evident in a range of economic activity indicators, not just December quarter GDP, but employment and unemployment, retail sales, um, motor vehicle sales, and a range of other things that go into measurements of economic activity. That said, uh, there are a couple of notes of caution, I'd sound, about 
whether the rebound in economic activity will be as strong as those which followed the exits from earlier lockdowns last year across Australia as a whole, and especially in Victoria. The first thing is that the vaccination targets which governments have expressed are measured in terms of the so-called eligible population, which even though people between 12 and 15 are eligible for the vaccination, is defined as people aged 16 and over. Now that excludes 20%, roughly speaking, of the population. So when we say that 70 and 80% of the eligible population have been either singly or doubly vaccinated, what we're actually saying is about 56 and 64% of the total population have been vaccinated. And my reading of the epidemiological modeling that's been done and my interpretation of the experiences of countries like the UK, Israel, and most recently Singapore, is that opening up with vaccination rates of 56 or 64% of the total population does carry some risks of the virus re-emerging in people who haven't been vaccinated, of which there's a significant number. So there is still some risk that New South Wales or Victoria could be forced back into lockdown or at least tighter restrictions reimposed, as has happened, for example, recently in Singapore. The second thing is that because people in New South Wales and Victoria will know that COVID is circulating in their community, as distinct from the confidence they had when they exited from earlier lockdowns that COVID was not circulating, people may well continue to impose voluntary restrictions on their mobility, which will dampen the rebound in a range of forms of consumer spending. The third thing is that irrespective of what New South Wales and Victoria are doing, the outlying states would appear to remain reluctant to allow travel between them and New South Wales and Victoria. So it won't be a nationwide rebound in spending. The fourth thing is that many of the things on which people splurged as they emerged from lockdown last time are things that they don't need to buy multiple numbers of. And the fifth consideration is that it looks as though at least the people of New South Wales may be allowed to travel overseas. And hopefully from their point of view, the people of Victoria will be eventually as well. And that may well mean that some of the spending that people want to undertake as they are freed from lockdown will actually occur overseas rather than within Australia as it all did when we exited from lockdowns in 2020 and in the first half of 2021. So to sum up all of that, yes, there's going to be a rebound and emerging from lockdowns is a significant step on the path to returning to a more normal way of life as well as a more normal economy. But I don't think the rebound will be as strong as the ones which followed our earlier exits from lockdowns. And there is still some risk, hard for me to calibrate it, but still some risk that New South Wales and Victorian governments may find themselves forced to reimpose some restrictions if it turns out that they've opened up at levels of vaccination that aren't sufficiently high to be completely safe. And of course, uh, that will affect consumer and business confidence as well, won't it? Well, yes, it will. Um, one of the th reasons why we had such a strong rebound as we emerged from previous lockdowns is that consumers and businesses were confident that we wouldn't be going back into lockdown again. And that's one reason why the lockdowns that the people of Sydney and Melbourne and 
regional Victoria and New South Wales have been experiencing have been so debilitating for business and consumer confidence. And that in turn is why I think the state governments of New South Wales and Victoria, uh, well, the state government of Victoria in particular has abandoned its previous zero COVID approach. And as New South Wales has more or less always had, decided that they have to learn to live with COVID, whatever that actually means in practice. That's an entirely understandable and I guess in most ways appropriate response to the sheer exhaustion that persistent and repeated lockdowns have caused in New South Wales and especially in Victoria. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What impact will all of that have on future jobs figures? Well, I think we will see quite a strong rebound in employment for a couple of reasons. The first is that government schemes, JobKeeper last year, and the combination of federal and state government support for employers in the most recent lockdowns have been explicitly designed to keep people connected to their jobs and ensure as far as possible that the employers themselves survive so that they have jobs to offer people as uh, states open up again. And I think they've been pretty successful in that. So what we've seen during the lockdowns is a significant increase in the number of people who are counted as employed, even though they work zero hours. We haven't really seen a significant increase in the number of people who've actually lost their jobs altogether and won't have something to go back to. And all the signs are, and the Reserve Bank specifically referred to this in its statement after this month's uh, board meeting, is that employers seem to be ready to hire more workers to meet the demand for services in particular, but also goods that they're anticipating as those two states emerge from lockdowns. And we also know that with our international borders continuing to be closed to incoming migrants, that those who are looking for jobs aren't competing with incoming migrants for them, uh, indeed to the point where the ratio of the number of unemployed people to the number of vacant jobs available is the lowest it's been for more than 40 years. So the question really is not so much will there be enough jobs, it's will the people who are looking for jobs have the skills required to do the jobs that are available. And that may cause some frictions in the labour market. The $64 question is uh, how has this affected markets overseas? How has it affected uh, Singapore, which uh, recently went up to sort of 3,000 cases a day, and uh, despite an 81% vaccination rate, and, uh, and Israel? Well, that's the risk that I was referring to before, that Australia, or at least New South Wales and Victoria, are planning to open when 
in effect, 56 and 64% of the total populations of their states have been fully vaccinated, uh, as opposed to the 70 and 80% which they speak about, which only refers to the 80% of the population that are aged 16 and over. So the experience of Singapore and Israel does suggest that there is some risk, and I don't want to put it more strongly than that, but some risk that we could see a significant surge in new infections again. Now, the experience of Israel and the UK is also that the virus will not cause most people who catch it, who've been vaccinated, to have to go to hospital. Uh, but there will nonetheless be, as the premiers of both states are warning their citizens, an increase in the number of hospitalizations and some increase in the number of deaths. Now, what remains to be seen is what impact that will have on everyone else's behavior. Will they impose additional voluntary restrictions on themselves or will, as, as I understand has been the case in Singapore just in the past week or so, the government find itself obliged to impose at least some new restrictions or reimpose some new restrictions on what people can do. If they do have to do that, I think that will have a damaging impact on business and consumer confidence. Right, so uh, we should not be that confident about future GDP numbers. Well, I think we should. I think there are grounds for optimism. As I said before, there's likely to be a solid rebound in spending economic activity and employment as New South Wales and then Victoria do emerge from their lockdown. My hesitancy is in saying that those rebounds will be as strong as the ones we had, for example, in the second half of last year, when GDP grew by more than 3% in two consecutive quarters. Um, I think we'll probably get at least 3% in the December quarter, um, but it may not be much more than that, and we probably won't get more than 3% in the March quarter of next year. And there is some risk. It's hard for me not being uh, an epidemiologist to put a number on it. But I think the experience of countries like Israel and Singapore suggests that there is some risk that people will curb their behavior voluntarily for fear of catching the virus, knowing that it's circulating in a way that it wasn't when we emerged from previous lockdowns. And the possibility, again, I can't calibrate, that governments might find it necessary to reimpose at least some restrictions, even if that falls short of going back into a complete lockdown, if the surge in cases that's expected to follow from opening up does seriously threaten to overwhelm the ability of the hospital system to cope with the, the number of um, admissions. So it's like those are sobering thoughts and thank you very much for your time. Well, that's a pleasure, Leon. Good to talk to you as always. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the global economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic is weakening and risks are rising, according to the International Monetary Fund. The IMF on Tuesday slashed its 2021 growth forecast for the United States by one full percentage points to 6%, the biggest reduction suffered by any G7 economy in its latest World Economic Outlook. The cut reflects disruptions to supply chains and softening consumption in the third quarter, the IMF said. The revision comes days after Goldman Sachs cut its growth forecast for the US economy this year and next, citing weaker consumer spending and the winding down of the government's COVID-19 relief programs. The IMF now expects the global economy to grow 5.9% in 2021, 0.1 percentage points lower than the July forecasts. 
and the Morrison government cut its economic outlook for the September quarter, saying the contraction will be 50% larger than previously flagged. Treasurer Josh Friedberg said he expected gross domestic product to fall by 3% or more, up from his previous 2% or more guidance. And New South Wales residents splurged $100 million at retail outlets on Monday as the eased health restrictions allowed for resumption of trading at places including hairdressers and restaurants. It represents a 185% jump from the previous Monday when New South Wales residents spent $35 million at retail outlets, according to estimates from National Australia Bank. New South Wales residents spent $12.8 million at restaurants, pubs and bars, up from $1 million on the previous Monday, and $5 million on hairdressers and barbers. Spending on clothing increased tenfold, from $1 million to $10 million. And after months of lockdown, business owners were exalted on Monday as Sydney reopened, but they'll need to brace for a permanent change in customer behaviour. Once this initial round of euphoric spending expires, it's likely that many small businesses, particularly those in the entertainment, leisure, hospitality and tourism sectors, will have to brace themselves for demand to be weaker than the pre-COVID-19 era. This is because the post-pandemic new normal is likely to be characterised by even more wary consumer behaviour. This has certainly been the experience of the United States. The US economy enjoyed a more robust recovery than most, boosted by massive dollops of US government spending. But in recent weeks, leading economists have been scaling back their US growth forecasts to reflect both the sharp decline in US fiscal stimulus and the distinct wariness that US consumers are showing for activities that involve large crowds. Goldman Sachs economists, for instance, have cut back their estimates for US economic growth back to 5.6% for 2021 and to 4% for 2022. They also noted that consumers have demonstrated a reluctance to resume some of the previous spending patterns in what they described as longer-lasting virus drag on virus-sensitive consumer services. This, they say, will likely prove challenging while COVID cases remain elevated, since many people still feel at least somewhat uncomfortable engaging in many activities that were routine prior to the pandemic. And Australia shelled out $27 billion under the government's signature JobKeeper wage subsidy to firms whose revenues didn't fall sufficiently to qualify for the program or actually increased during the period, according to a Treasury analysis. At the height of the pandemic lockdown, about $11.4 billion was paid in the second quarter of 2020 and $15.6 billion in the third quarter to businesses that didn't have a 30-50% to 50% decline in sales compared with a year earlier, Treasury said in its report. Of this, $4.6 billion went to businesses that had an increase in revenue over the year to the June quarter, and $9.2 billion to the businesses with an increase over the year to the September quarter, Treasury said in the report titled Insights from the First Six Months of JobKeeper. However, the tax office has cleared thousands of businesses suspected of gaming the $89 billion JobKeeper program, despite concerns within the Federal Treasury they had structured their affairs to qualify for a $1,500 per employee payment. As research commissioned by the Labor Party shows, almost $20 billion went to businesses that enjoyed an increase in turnover while receiving JobKeeper assistance. The ATO said despite tip-offs from the public, it found almost all businesses complied with the program's eligibility criteria. And China has partially relaxed its unofficial ban on Australian coal, with some shipments of the commodity allowed to clear customs as authorities struggle to deal with a national power shortage threatening the country's economic recovery. Coal industry executives and diplomats say they are hopeful the move is the first phase of a broader easing of restrictions imposed almost a year ago. While China would be reluctant to be seen to be backing away from its efforts to punish Australia economically, its current power crisis means it has little choice. And Australian researchers are trialling a smartwatch app that can monitor a worker's vitals and tell them if it's okay to go to work or if they should stay home and potentially get a COVID-19 test. 
The app uses a heart rate and blood oxygen, or SpO2, sensors in Samsung's recently released Galaxy Watch 4 smartwatch and works together with a phone-based app on which workers answer questions about their well-being each morning before they go to work. Data from the watch and the phone is fed into a decision support system that either tells the worker to stay home or produces a QR code on the phone screen that could be scanned by the workplace to certify the worker has been cleared for work that day. And COVID-19 has accelerated the death of cheques and ATM withdrawals as pandemic restrictions change the way we pay for our goods and services. But the fear of economic downturn has also driven a surge in the number of $100 and $50 notes stashed away under mattresses and in shoeboxes across the country, with a record amount of cash now in circulation. Data from the Reserve Bank shows how consumer purchasing trends have been changed by the pandemic, which has accelerated the use of technologies such as tap-and-go and direct debit as people make purchases from their home offices. In August this year, just 719,000 personal cheques were drawn by the Australians, the smallest number since the RBA started collecting figures. Since February last year, before the country's first lockdowns to stop the spread of coronavirus, the number of personal cheques has fallen by 39%. It continues a pre-COVID-19 trend as Australia approaches the end of cheques in the mail, with the payment system down 86% over the past decade. While the RBA has been openly talking about the eventual end of a cheque system, COVID-19 has also changed our attitude towards cash. In February last year, more than $10.2 billion in cash was withdrawn from ATMs nationwide, but by August this year, this had fallen by almost $3 billion to a record low of $7.3 billion. While the value of withdrawals has fallen 28%, the number of transactions has dropped by 43%, in a sign that when people do use an ATM, they're taking out a large amount of cash. The cash, however, is not going through the nation's shops. The number of $100 and $50 notes in the economy has reached an all-time high. Since COVID-19, the value of $100 notes has jumped to $6.6 billion, or 17.5%, while the value of $50 notes in circulation has climbed by almost 24%, or $9.3 billion. But $5 and $10 notes continue to fall in number and value. And Australia needs an explosive post-World War II-style immigration surge that could bring in 2 million people over five years to rebuild the economy and address worsening labour shortages, according to New South Wales Government advice to new Premier Dominic Perrottet. Top bureaucrats last week urged Mr Perrottet to seize the national leadership initiative by pushing a national dialogue on an aggressive resumption of immigration levels as a key means of economic recovery and post-pandemic growth. An ambitious national immigration plan similar to Australia's post-World War II approach would ensure Australia would benefit from skills investment and population growth, Mr Perrottet was told in the advice. In a sign the new Premier is taking the advice seriously, Mr Perrottet said the borders need to be opened up amid a general labour shortage to ensure a healthy economic recovery. And Westpac's full-year profit will take a $1.3 billion hit due to heavy write-downs as it shrinks its institutional bank and takes additional provisions for potential legal action and customer remediation after the Royal Commission. In an indication Westpac is keen to resolve future regulatory cases relating to misconduct identified by the Hain Inquiry, it said it has added new provisions for litigation matters, including to resolve outstanding investigations should a regulator decide to bring civil penalty proceedings. A National Australia Bank's Business Confidence Survey showed a strong rebound for September, up 19 points for a positive index return of 13 points. Business conditions fell 9 points for September to equal a positive return of 5 index points. NAB said this continued a rapid decline from pre-lockdown record highs. And record levels of ongoing and unfunded spending are being baked into a federal budget already running the largest deficits in history, with government debt on its way to $1 trillion. 
on top of short-term government responses to the coronavirus pandemic, a series of policy initiatives around social services and defence on top of anything promised ahead of the election could consolidate spending at levels normally associated with sharp economic downturns or war. Deloitte Access Economics on Monday released its latest quarterly outlook on the economy, forecasting the recovery out of COVID-19 pandemic had been delayed rather than derailed by recent lockdowns aimed at preventing the spread of the Delta strain of the coronavirus. It is tipping the economy to grow by 1.5% in 2021-22, driven by further lift from the mining and agriculture sectors, a lift in business investment and a 4.4% step up in public expenditure. Growth is likely to be strongest in Tasmania and South Australia, with the New South Wales economy forecast to expand by 0.3% and Victoria's by 1.2%. But Deloitte Director Chrisette Richardson said another issue beyond the recovery from the pandemic is the state of the federal budget. He said the public sector deficit this year will be almost 2% of national income, higher than what is forecast by federal and state budgets combined. And according to the President of the Business Council of Australia, when the facts change, business has to go back and reassess decisions. Tim Reid's rationale will, will offer ice-cold comfort to former ALP leader Bill Shorten. In 2019, the BCA famously described Labor's election commitment to reduce emissions by 45% to 2030 as economy-wrecking, compounding Scott Morrison's assault on Labor's economic credibility. Yet the BCA not only wants Australia to reduce emissions by slightly more than that over the next decade, it is also promoting the economic growth and commercial opportunities this inevitable shift will produce if done right. This still looks like less a matter of change facts, more a matter of change fears. Yes, advances in technology only ever accelerate, including dramatic falls in the cost of renewable energy and expanding horizons for new industries like hydrogen. But the biggest fear stalking Australia's biggest business community is being caught out by the rapidly changing demand by investors and global capital markets to demonstrate much more urgent action on climate change. It's why so many companies, including in the resources sectors, have moved well ahead of the Morrison government on this, demanding can Canberra belatedly catch up. And BHP says Australia will not have the luxury of ignoring nuclear power's optimistic potential to deliver reliable, carbon-free electricity, as experts said last month's submarine pact had welded the nation's future to the radioactive fuel. Fiona Wild, BHP's Vice President of Sustainability and Climate, said Australia had great opportunities to, to tap the largest known resource of uranium, the raw feedstock for nuclear power generation. She said nuclear power can play a significant role in providing low greenhouse gas emissions power, but there are issues associated with it. She said there are great opportunities there, and obviously Australia has large uranium resources. She said it should be on the table as one of its, a range of options Australia needs to think through. And small businesses have been dealt a major setback by a court ruling that found a range of insurance policies did not cover them for financial losses during COVID. It means insurers may be able to avoid paying out policies that small businesses hoped would cover them for COVID downturn losses. The federal court ruling on a crucial test case means that insurance companies may potentially avoid paying out billions in payouts. The court found that the majority of nine business interruptions, BI policies, put before it for scrutiny would not need to be paid out by the insurers. Business interruption insurance has emerged as a controversial space during the pandemic with insurance giants claiming they never intended for these sorts of policies to cover pandemics. It is estimated there were roughly 250,000 policies of this ilk in Australia when the pandemic struck, with a total potential liability of $10 billion. The decision is being appealed. And a US investment firm with over $3 billion in managed assets will bankroll the latest challenge to Australia's aviation market with an independent low-cost carrier called Bonza that aims to take off early next year. Founded by former Virgin Blue executive Tim Jordan, the new airline will fly Boeing 7378 jets leased from linchpin investor 77 Partners and forego the lucrative golden triangle routes between Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne 
for underserved leisure locations in hopes of stimulating new demand. Mr Jordan said this was a more sustainable business model than taking on established players like Qantas, Virgin Australia and Regional Express on their home turf. And supermarket giants Coles and Woolworths, along with Commonwealth Bank and National Australian Banks, are supporting a new QR payments platform developed by FPOS. FPOS's new QR payments platform called eQR will allow customers to photograph a QR code to pay, like checking into a venue during COVID. The retailers like camera payments because they will be able to integrate reward schemes with the payment, in contrast to the status quo, where flybys or other rewards cards or vouchers are presented them separately to the payment card. This will allow them to improve the marketing of offers to customers. For the banks, paying with a QR code will allow them to bring payments into their banking apps, driving customer usage and engagement. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Ashik Ahmed, the CEO and co-founder of the Global Workforce Management Platform for Employee Scheduling, Timesheets and Communications, Deputy, about the impact of the lockdowns on gig workers. And I'll be talking to economist Sinclair Davidson about how much we can recover economically. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 